Welcome to the Leadership Network Podcast. Leadership Network is a community of multipliers who gather to collaborate, innovate, and pursue what God has next for His church. Our mission is to champion healthy growth that is capable of reproducing. Thank you for joining this conversation, and here's today's episode. Hey, we want to welcome you to this webinar hosted by Leadership Network. And if you're not familiar with Leadership Network, we exist to convene catalytic conversations that foster spirit-led movements of innovation. And we want these conversations to be helpful and encouraging the church to say, what is the spirit of God doing in this day? How can we join him in that work? And we want to help leaders like you that are watching this or that are watching later, just perceive and pursue that. Uh, so the Leadership Network team has identified six themes that we see as what is next for the church. And one of those is the emergence of microchurch networks in the West. And so Tuesdays at this time, we're hosting a webinar series, just exploring that theme. And our hope is that this space will be like a, a fire that we can get around as leaders who are exploring this, pioneering in this lane, and really glean from leaders who are, are working in this area. And so we're here to serve you. And we're here to seek Jesus together. And we want this to be a place that you can be reminded weekly, hey, you're not alone and you're not crazy, or at least not <laughs> way crazy. You might be a little bit. So welcome to episode three. Uh, my name is Brian Johnson. I'm part of the Microchurch Next team and one of the local directors in the Kansas City Underground, which is a network of missionary leaders and microchurches in the Kansas City area. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we kicked off this webinar series that's focused on exploring the microchurch paradigm. And we believe that this way of being the church is not a new form, but really an ancient form. And, and we believe that a compelling case can be made that the microchurch is the original design within the pages of the New Testament. And and we know it's also one of the primary expressions of the church in the most significant disciple-making movements on the planet today, especially in the global South. And so we're exploring different angles of microchurch in this webinar series to set some language and context, because we believe that now is the time for us to return to the microchurch in the West for biblical reasons, cultural reasons, and missiological reasons. And so today I have the privilege of talking with a friend of mine from the Tampa underground, Stacy Gaskins. And I'm going to let Stacy tell a little bit more about herself in a minute, but just a brief introduction. Stacy's a part of the Underground Network's international planning team, where her primary role is working to equip movement leaders to plant missional hubs that empower everyday missionaries in their cities. And locally, she's a part of a home-based microchurch, does mentoring, street, and club outreach with Created, which is a microchurch for vulnerable women in the sex industry in Tampa, Florida. So, uh, Stacy, we've gotten to know each other over the last few years, and it's always, to me, a joy to talk to you, uh, to be challenged by you. Such an incredible leader. So thankful uh, for just our connection. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about your experience with the underground, introduce yourself, part of your role there, how long you've been part of the network, what's your current role, maybe just whatever introduction you want to give. Okay. Yeah, good to be with you, Brian. Uh, I always have fun talking microchurch and ministry with, with you and people from your team. Yeah, I um, have had the honor of being a part of the underground since um, it started. So I was a part of the original 50 that Brian Sanders invited to. We didn't really know if we were supposed to be a thing back then, but just to dream a little and to pray and to ask God what he wanted to do in our city. 
Um, so that was probably about 20 years ago that that first 50 began to pray together. At that time, I was full-time in campus ministry. And so um, my involvement at that time with the underground was more in microchurch involvement and some volunteer roles like coaching teams and um, serving as an elder and a governing elder and that kind of a thing. Um, in more recent years, five years ago, I came on staff full-time and have been a part of this movements team that you were talking about. And we're really, there's a small team, about three of us. We're really working to just serve and equip leaders who are starting new microchurch networks from the ground up. And, um, and more recently, having conversations with more established um, churches coming from a more maybe centralized paradigm who are thinking about transitioning and talking about what are those sort of structural tensions you're going to have to wrestle with and missiological tensions if you're going to make that shift. So that's kind of how we're spending our time. And that's my phone. Sorry. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for that setup. It, I mean, you've got the broad spectrum of being a part of the ins and outs from early on, seeing so many transitions of the underground network there in Tampa. Uh, I love hearing the new stuff of helping churches make these transitions. So I'll just say this too, for those of you that are a part of the, the webinar today, you're watching, if you have questions uh, for Stacy along the way, you can just pop those into the chat and we'll do our best to answer those. So we just want to dig into this topic for today and I'm going to do a little bit of setup uh, real quick, just to kind of center us in where we've been, which will set us up for where we're going. So in the first week, we explored language around what are microchurches? What do we mean when we use this word? Uh, what makes a microchurch a microchurch? And we talked with uh, one of your mates, Lucas, mm -hmm. and really just got into the nuts and bolts of definitions. And I know for us, the Tampa Underground's work on minimal ecclesiology, which we got into a little bit that day was so important. And just helping us kind of set our frameworks and understand our shift into this microchurch paradigm. Last week, Rob interviewed Jeff Vanderstelt, talked about the work with the Soma family of churches, really got into the distinctive differences between small groups and microchurches, like that question, are these really just the same thing with a new brand? <laughs> but really at the heart of that conversation, I think is this word identity. Like a small group often feels a greater identity as a subset of the gathered church, whereas a micro church really understands their identity as the church in their network of relationships. We, we own that identity at that level. And the extended spiritual family, that, that is the church. And a part of that conversation landed on leadership as well. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're headed today in greater depth. And we know, you know, we were talking a little bit, just an email before uh, we, we set all this up. We know that the church leadership, especially in the West, maybe has often been confined to a select few. Mm -hmm. You could argue that as we move away from the pages of the New Testament, where we see pictures of Lydia and Priscilla and the jailer and Crispus, like we see what we end up seeing is a smaller and smaller category of people that would be recognized as leaders. And oftentimes there's this word calling that gets thrown out there. And that word has sort of been reserved for the select class of Christians that we've labeled the professionals. Mm -hmm. um, but as we've seen the emergence of microchurch networks and decentralized movements and these unique expressions of the church in diverse contexts, I think we could say we're starting to see leaders rise up that match the diversity of those expressions. And so as we mapped out this webinar, 
the series, your name came up. We knew we want to talk to you. We know you have some stories uh, just with your experience in leading in Tampa. As we consider this question, who can lead within a microchurch? And again, in the predominant model of the church in the West, we know that I want to say leadership has been limited. We might even use the word restricted mm-hmm. uh, to, to a smaller group and, and to be recognized as a leader. There are these steps that you have to take and they can be complicated. They can be lengthy and maybe even to be a little blunt. Most of the time you have to be male. Mm-hmm. So get into that if you want. But in the microchurch networks that we're leading, we have the privilege of coming alongside everyday people who are discerning clarity in their own call. We're getting to equip people to help them see their dreams realized. And the question is not, do you have the right training or the right competencies? The question is, how can we help you fill any gaps in that training? How can we support you in this this God-sized dream that is coming up? And I don't want to spoil too much, but in the companion article you wrote for this webinar, there was one phrase that you wrote that jumped off the page that I hope will just kind of be a springboard for the rest of this conversation. You said, Jesus calls people who seem like unlikely leaders to us into all kinds of creative expressions of the church. Mm-hmm. Anyone can lead a microchurch if God is the one sending them. <laughs> that last phrase was like, I'm in. <laughs> so you told us a little bit about your role in the underground can you just jump in with like, what's your role with in microchurches? What's that journey and leadership been like? Yeah. Um, my, you know, early on for me, before we were using the language of microchurch or had named it the underground, most of us were leading home-based type microchurches. So I had one of those. I was on campus doing ministry with students and Um, Looking back, I would say a lot of the student groups that we started and the way we were empowering student leaders, um, they were leading microchurches on campus. You know, that's what we were doing is empowering them as young believers to um, reach their peers in their own heart language. And while we were doing that on campus, I was also leading some home-based type microchurches. And then after um, we came back from the Philippines and, and sort of named this thing the underground and started talking about microchurches, which to us was an expansion of the vision of church. I know you guys have probably talked about that already, but we started seeing, you know, the sort of thing that was given birth in the network was the diversity of expressions. So we were seeing these more mission specific microchurches. And one of those that I was a part of was created um, that it's a microchurch to women who are coming out of the sex industry in Tampa Um, wanting to see vulnerable women restored to their identity and destiny in Jesus, you know. And um, back then we just knew that we had seen something in the Philippines. There was this team of women, amazing women, Samaritana, who were working against a prostitute-free society, towards a prostitute-free society in Metro Manila. And we came back and realized we had uh, one of the cities with the top number one, number two spots for largest sex industry in the country. So there were just a few of us that were sort of trying to discern God's heart and where we're supposed to do something. Um, So I've been a part of that, you know, early on when it was just seven volunteers who had full-time jobs and we didn't know anything about the industry in Tampa. None of us came from those backgrounds. Um, So we were doing everything, you know, we were out there experimenting and failing and doing kind of ridiculous things to try and figure out how do we relate to the women? How do we reach the women? Um, 
So I was a part of that team for a long time. Um, and it's that ministry in particular has grown and scaled into something quite large and beautiful and complicated. And so I still do mentoring with them and street outreach and um, outreach in the strip clubs with them. Um, but alongside that, I'm also currently a part of a home-based microchurch. Um, there's some, I, I hesitate to say it out loud on a thing that's being broadcast, but I, you know, been sort of having this urge in my heart towards maybe the foster care system or things like that. So I'm sort of dipping my toe in as a way of discerning right now, doing some guardian ad litem work, which is child advocacy in the court system. And that home-based microchurch is a great place for me to be able to step out and try and discern, you know, new places of mission while also having that place of sort of belonging and community and worship to be a part of. So, yeah. So you mentioned, when we came back from the Philippines. So for those that don't know the greater story there. Yeah. Uh, so you got this team of people that are coming together and it's like, we need to see new expression of the church, new forms, new exploration, this missional imagination that's growing. And part of that answer was let's go somewhere in the world. Right. And, and the spirit revealed to you the Philippines. So you go for nine months Right. We sent a team of nine adults and their 10 kids for nine months. Um, I didn't go for the whole nine months, but then there was a big group of us from the 50 who went at the end of that nine months and spent time with the team and meeting the pastors, the, the Filipino pastors that had been mentoring them. And that's where we sort of started talking about the, the structure ideas and language and the values and all of that together. So if I could like just throw a, a question we didn't talk about, <laughs> what was it about leadership in that context that maybe began to inform as you come back, you're thinking, you know, man, these are their, their understanding of leadership. This is how we want to understand leadership. What were some things that you took away from that? Yeah. I mean, like so many amazing believers that are laboring around the world among the very, very poor, um, there was this like incredible obscurity about what they were doing, that um, it really was in the name of Jesus and for Jesus. And, um, and they were okay with that. You know, they sort of talked about like downward mobility, the downward mobility of the cross, you know, and the journey into obscurity as people who serve and lead and do ministry. And, that had a really significant impact on us in terms of practical things like being organizationally shy, especially for the first decade that we were doing what we were doing. And, and also, you know, wanting whatever we did to be really about serving and loving people and not, and, and building the kingdom, not building a name or um, a new thing, you know? Um, and then I just think they're, they're so different than us in the West. <laughs> So their values for community, for holistic ministry, you know, back then there was sort of this real tension in the world and maybe they're, maybe it's coming back. I don't know between like, do we preach the gospel or do we demonstrate the gospel in terms of like justice and action? And that question was confounding when we tried to ask them like, Hey, this is a big controversy in States back then, you know, and how do you guys view this theologically? And they were just sort of like, your question doesn't make sense. Like, Yes, both things, <laughs> you know, we have to talk about Jesus, but if people don't have food or they don't have access to healthcare or medicine, then we should build co-ops and in the name of Jesus, try to provide and come alongside for holistic healing, you know? So there were things like that 
And then I would say structurally, you know, um, any of us who have done parachurch ministry, like on the campus or have visited the third world and, and seen the way that um, indigenous leaders around the world are doing church, a lot of it doesn't look anything like the sort of buildings that we grew up going to church in and the services and the sort of um, centering around that place, you know, and so seeing what they were doing in the some communities and these medical co-ops and the, the youth programs and this ministry Samaritana with women on the streets. Um, you know, I went to a McDonald's one night and hung out and just got to talk to a bunch of women who are working and make bracelets with them and hear about their families and their kids and pray for them. And Samaritana was teaching us like church can happen here at McDonald's. Mm. Even when a woman gets a text and she runs out because of a customer like, we can pray for her and be the church for her here. And so it was just really expanding our hearts for what can church be, where can it happen? And, um, and, you know, how do we enter into new spaces with people so that they can have access to Jesus, you know, in a, in a way that maybe not everyone gets access if they have to come into our buildings. Yeah. So I hear, you know, you have this experience. Mm -hmm. it, you guys come back and as a group of you, you're saying like, how do we address this thing in our own city? Mm -hmm. like what we were seeing globally, we have it here. Mm -hmm. It's a glaring issue of brokenness. The kingdom is not present in this place. So I know one of the words that we're throwing around a lot here is just the word permission. I don't mm -hmm. know how, how helpful it is, but yeah. I like it right now. Um, so I guess I want to frame a question around like like at what point or, or what were the things maybe for you that was like, I'm a, I'm a leader. Mm. I, I can step into this. I don't, I don't need someone to appoint or ordain or whatever other words, but like I have permission because of who I am. Like what were some of the things as you come back and you have conversations with those other women that you kind of stood up and into that specific mm. calling you were feeling? Yeah, I think for me, um, you might be referring to the created piece. You know, I, I wouldn't say I was really at the tip of that sphere. You know, I was part of that team. But I think for me, I'd already been wrestling with that a lot as a woman who had started out in campus ministry very young in my young 20s, you know, in a place where in the South, you know, there are, it is typically like men who are in leadership and, and ordained in that kind of a way. So I had probably been walking that journey for a little while, but I think permission giving you know, we were thinking about that too, not because we felt like we were the like the holders of power that had to give people permission, but because we maybe like you guys perceive that our structures traditionally um, are wired towards saying yes, if we're all headed in this direction, or if we have the right training or the right equipping, we've been around long enough, we have the right budget. And the sense that people needed needed someone they perceived to have spiritual authority in their life to say yes to them. So I needed that from people, you know, in that creative situation, Brian Sanders was a catalyst to invite the seven people who sort of started that team and say, you know, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but it seems like you guys have a heart for this, you know, maybe you should. And that was a way he was able to come alongside that team and give his gifts to see it start. But, you know, we needed him to say like, you know, even if churches in town think that you're a little bit insane, you know, it's okay for you to get out there and start. And 
I think that's probably what a lot of our leaders in our network have needed, you know, is someone that they perceive to have spiritual authority, um, listening to those things that are emerging in their life and their heart from God and saying, yeah, maybe you should try that. Even if you don't have it all figured out yet, maybe you should try that, you know? So another way, maybe we've talked about it is having a radical bias towards yes. When people come to us when they're with their kingdom dreams, you know, instead of leaning towards no, like, um, maybe like, do you have a good plan and how long have you been at this? And is your team formed and have you figured out your methods and strategies instead of leaning into those questions to lean towards wanting to say yes. And then how do we help you, you know, to move forward in that? Yeah. So you're kind of answering one of the bigger questions I wanted to talk to you about today, which is just what have been the commitments of the Tampa underground to this belief and empowering and equipping any missionary leader that comes with a dream or a calling. I mean, a part of that I'm hearing is just that radical bias to yes. You know, so are there maybe other cultural things that you guys sort of have, maybe it's not written down, but just internally as a team, you know, it's like, these are commitments for us when it comes to equipping and empowering people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously like the conviction comes from scripture from the New Testament, you know, the way we see Jesus himself giving away power and sharing power. Um, what we see in Acts in terms of the gift of the Holy Spirit and um, the fact that the Spirit of God, you know, is being poured out on all people. You know, those convictions of like, who is God calling into the work of the kingdom? So our convictions are really rooted from that place, not in some like novel idea that we felt like obviously we stumbled on, you know, it's like God is the one calling people. And I think we're just trying not to be a stumbling block to that. You know, that's our conviction. Like if God wants a leader like us, Stacey Hester in our network to reach single moms because of the experiences that she's had being a single mother, if God wants that, like, we don't want to be a barrier to that. Who are we to say she can't do that? Um, so I think the conviction has been like, let's let's try to see like who is God calling, and then how do we come alongside them? And I think you know obviously some of the structural things that have helped save us from ourselves is the ecclesial minimum. So if a person wants to do worship, community, and mission, you know we've said we believe that where those things overlap, that's the church. Um, and, you know, we have, you know, we have our sandbox in terms of like our values and our theology and stuff like that. And, and people who want to be a leader in our network, um, those are the edges. Of the, we do have edges to the sandbox, what we'll say yes to, what we'll say no to. But if those values and that heart to grow into being the church line up, um, then we just try to be disciplined in saying yes to people and coming alongside them. So a lot of networks that we work with, they might feel more comfortable saying yes to a kingdom dream um, if it's a little bit more fully formed, has team, it's got some methods and practices. Um, but, you know, when we think about phases of microchurch life, what we've observed, you know, in the first 10 years of our work was that there's maybe four major phases that microchurch development goes through. And to us, phase one is the idea initiative phase. And that's, that could be as small as a leader with a dream. And you've heard us tell the metaphor before, like, um, you know, comparing new microchurches, an idea to a baby, yeah. you know, that baby isn't fully grown, but it is human. Yeah. We would never say because it, you know, punches itself in the face and, you know, still has to have its diaper change that it's not human. 
but you know, it's not fully grown. It's not mature yet. And we would say that about microchurches that come with an idea that want to be worship community and mission. We want to affirm that as church, even though we recognize it's not fully mature yet. And so um, we want to be able to say yes to that and then say, how can we help you to, you know, grow as a microchurch idea? Yeah. I, I love the, it's rooted in this, scriptural commitment of the, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have this, there's, we always use that phrase that we might've even used it when we were talking to Lucas, there's no Holy spirit junior. <laughs> you have less of him than I do. Um, I think for us, that's been uh, a key commitment as well. We, we based ours maybe more in this Ephesians passage of Ephesians two ten that, you know, he set us apart, he's renewing us, and he has this set body of good works for each of us to do. And we love that phrase. Uh, so we've kind of used that uh, language of masterpiece mission, that we each have this masterpiece mission, that as we surrender to Jesus, we understand he has called us to engage a certain part of our culture, our city, our neighborhood, our workspace, to join him in that set body of good works, to see the kingdom come in those ways. And I think that commitment to just saying, if you believe in that surrender to Jesus as Lord, and you believe that he has a set body of good works, you can join him in it and you can invite others to join you in that commitment. Mm-hmm. Then you become a leader. right? So we have this kind of process of helping people discover that we call it personal calling and discovery. We've got a series of assessments that we send people through and then we sit down and debrief that with them and talk about their story and where they've seen those things, uh, their, their, their spiritual gifts, their maybe some calling sense that they understand about their life, or maybe they don't have any awareness of it at all. It's just like, Hey, here's my story. Let's explore it. Maybe see where, where it's like Jesus has sort of stepped in and I've been able to join him, but I, I didn't understand maybe that was calling. And it's really been fun to see people come awake to uh, it, it's, it's single moms or it's entering into the jail system or um, it's the rodeo community or whatever it is. Those are a few of ours. Um, and I know that we've learned a lot from Tampa with this calling piece and just how you walk people through that and, uh, we tweaked ours for our network, but talk a little bit about just that calling lab and what that means, how you've walked people through that, maybe even share a story of like your experience in it, helping somebody discover that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The calling lab is like a really, uh, I would say, you know, we can help people think about calling in very organic ways or very organized ways. And the calling lab is definitely like one of our most organized ways of doing that. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, in the early years of the underground, but also in our micro churches, you know, the way that happens is very organic, very conversational. It was like over a cup of coffee or over a meal, hearing someone's heart. And like you were saying, listening to their story with them and what, what's God's do, what's God doing and pointing to that and calling that out and saying, man, maybe God really wants you to take a next step in that thing. And I think that's accessible to all of us, no matter, you know, what scale or scope we're leading in, we can listen to people's stories and encourage and affirm what we're seeing and what we're hearing in them. Um, but, but, you know, that evolved into um, listening days where we would take retreats and do sort of just 
prayer and worship and listening together and processing what's God doing, what are we hearing? And that eventually evolved into the Calling Lab, which is this more structured lab. It's accessible online. Anyone can use it. Um, and Brian really, Brian Sanders designed it and um, really, you know, it's sort of trying to triangulate between like the way we're made. Um, so we do some like um, personality type assessments, um, uh, some looking at like your life story, like what are things that are unique about your life story that might represent places of God's healing and transformative work in you that he's calling you back into or places of opportunity because you have this degree or this family history or you come from this place culturally like that provides some 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 opportunity you know for you that isn't accessible to me so there's some exploration of who you are as a person um there's some exploration of like needs that you're drawn to in the world things that God has sort of wired you for that your heart moves for and there's a lot of listening. So there's some just straight up like, Jesus, what are you saying to me? Um, and we sort of go through the day and there are often like coaches or guides involved who are helping process that. And the hope, right, is at the end of the day that someone might take the risk to put it out there and say, I think maybe God is calling me to. <laughs> and uh, what we found, you know, about calling is that some people it's like a it's like a lightning bolt thing that happens to them whether it's in the calling lab or you know in an encounter with someone in an alley behind their home here in the city or you know some encounter they had in the streets of manila it's it's like this thing that just john dangler always describes it as a haunting won't let them go till they take a next step with god you know and for some people it happens more gradually over time so if you think about like calling as concentric circles, maybe the big outside circle being that like revealed will of God, the things we all know from scripture that we should do every day to love our neighbors and to care for people and to serve them. And something like the calling lab, we hope makes that circle a little smaller and a little bit more specific, like these specific kinds of neighbors or this kind of person that I work with or this demographic that I have a heart for, you know, we're hoping that circle gets a little bit smaller and more specific for people. And um, I think we've seen that happen in a lot of ways over the years. Yeah. That, that piece of the haunting, that's usually the way I don't use that word, although I might start using that word. <laughs> I just I always tell people, I think that your calling will usually sort of line up with, uh, that kind of groaning in the deep places where you wake up in the middle of the night or early morning or, in the middle of the afternoon, you're still thinking about it and you go, as long as I'm taking breath, mm -hmm. I want to make that thing right. Mm -hmm. Like that is the heart of Jesus in you saying, that's where I want the kingdom to come and I want you to join me in it. Mm -hmm. So that's, again, I, I think it's such a, uh, it's a privilege to walk with people as they discover that. And again, for me, it's always just been like, man, I come alive when I watch that lightning bolt moment or even the gradual moment where it's like, I'm, I think I'm seeing some more pieces. I think this thing's fallen into place. This is what Jesus wants me to do. And we've walked with some people through personal calling and discovery. Like you said, that like the lightning bolt moment hit and they're off and running. Mm -hmm. uh, they're popping back in in three months going, look what all has happened. Yeah. 
<laughs> or there's another story I'm thinking of more of the single mom network that is happening here in KC as well, where one of our missionary leaders, you know, she was with us for two years, just faithfully showing up to all the equippings that we were offering, all the training that we were offering, connecting in wherever she could. And after about two years, it was like, Oh, it's been here the whole time. You know, and it was just exploration into different places of, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this. And then it was like, man, that single mom network was like, it was right there, always sort of just under the surface, but it was like, Jesus needed to take her through that, that revelation of that. So it's so good. Cause I think not to cut you off, but I think, you know, for both kind of leaders, that apostolic leader who they have a strong sense and they don't need a lot from you. They're like, I have big ideas and big dreams and I'm going to go chase those down that leader and the one who they see a clear need. And they're like, not really sure they're the person for it. Like maybe there's like insecurity there or some, like, that seems like a big need. And I don't know if I have what it takes to do that. I think the advice for both of those as they explore calling is like, just love one person in that space figure out what their needs are. Like just start there, figure out what their needs are because you don't know what you don't know yet. And if you can love that person and figure out what they need and try to provide that, then the next person comes along, you figure out what do they need? And, and probably like this woman you're describing your network, you find along the way, you know, that's happened with the clinic, um, the free clinic that started here at underground Catherine Butler's team. And in the beginning, it was just like, okay, let's, let's try this and get it set up and let's try to meet the needs of a few people and figure out like, can we even do this? And what do we need to do this? And how do we do this differently than the world does it? I think the advice is the same to both of them. Like just meet someone in the flesh, (laughs) get to know them and their actual needs and not just, you know, let it be this thing out there that's overwhelming that you're not sure how to accomplish. Yeah. hundred percent. I just had a call with, um, a young, uh, female leader about three weeks ago. And she comes from a background that is, um, deals with abuse and with homelessness and this just a huge dream. I want to see a micro church for, uh, she described them as houseless and, um, domestic violence. Now we already have, micro churches for both of those kind of, uh, places of, of brokenness where the kingdom does not fully exist in our city. Uh, and, but I'm not, I'm not telling her up front, Hey, we already have that. Don't worry about it. It's like, this is what you were called for. I can feel your passion in this. And, you know, I'm just asking questions, not about, Hey, what's your level of training? (laughs) What have you done? But oftentimes the question does come up. Who do you know already? in that circumstance or is that is experiencing this and we encourage all of our missionary leaders in the same way as not just hey you want to address a problem but put a name and a face to that mm-hmm. and make it specific like that whole idea that when jesus said love your neighbor as yourself he, he it's not a metaphorical neighbor mm-hmm. it's not just a problem but Like who is the person that you can extend your love to tangibly? So it's not a metaphorical love, but a real love. And it was cool to be able to say, Hey, we also do have these micro churches that already exist. Mm -hmm. And what I was able to end that time with was while you're exploring this and developing your own relationships, why don't you just explore both of these micro churches, jump in with them, join their team, 
mm-hmm. and serve with them for a little while mm-hmm. because there's a high likelihood they've been praying for your leadership within their network. Mm-hmm. There's probably already some gap they're feeling or some team member they're looking for, and you might be the person they've been praying for. It doesn't mean one day you won't be leading your own. You know, you won't move out of that and into some unique way of addressing the same thing in our city, just in a different place. Um, But be a part of that family for a little while. So it's always fun to be able to network those leaders in that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hey, real quick, can you mention where they can, uh, anybody can find the calling lab piece? Is there a specific website we can send people to on that? There is. (laughs) <laughs> and we will find it and post it. <laughs> I can't remember if it's, te- I think it's underground.teachable. Uh, we're on the Teachable platform, but it's, you know, if you go to the Tampa Underground website and to the resources tab, there'll be a free classes link there and you can get to it that way. Is it, would it be at tampaunderground.com forward slash calling lab? Could be. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll try to post that and see. I would have looked that up earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, let's maybe make a little shift here. I want to get your mind thinking on a question that I didn't pose to you before that I don't, I'm going to ask it and let your mind be churning. And then I'll send you to another question that you probably have an answer for. But um, what's been maybe a story of not failing, but like when, when we trip up, when we empower somebody that uh, maybe we said yes to, really fast. <laughs> we led with that bias. It was like, Oh, what we learned something from saying yes, too quick or too earlier. I don't know how to phrase that. Cause I don't want to say too quick, but, um, so I'm just curious, maybe in some of the, I don't want to call them failure stories, but learning stories. I think you get what I'm trying to say with that. Yeah, I do. I do. So if you, if you already have a story, maybe you can jump in, but otherwise I can ask you a different question. <laughs> Yeah, whichever way you want to go. I think um, I I will try to think of a specific story, but I think what we have found is interesting because we get a lot of questions about like the fact that we are willing to, you know, jump in with people so early in their journey. Like how many of those are like just theologically, you know, off the rocker or how many, you know, just sort of fail as a microchurch and, um, you know, it's, it's way fewer than you would imagine. When you, when you, you know, as we sort of think about that and worry about those possibilities, of course, things can go wrong. People are humans. They go wrong in our, you know, really centralized structures all the time too. Um, but I would say in, with microchurches, um, in some ways, the, the amount of people involved is a much smaller scale and scope, you know, so there's a lot more grace and mercy there to experiment and to try. And I think when you asked that, what I was thinking about, Brian, is that, you know, you keep bringing up the idea of like not waiting till people are trained and equipped and all of that stuff. And maybe one of my observations over the years, you know, having grown up in a really centralized version of church is that I think we tend to have a bias in our culture that a person needs to be like trained to a certain point, equipped to a certain point, mature to a certain point, And then maybe we can entrust you with a group of people to lead and to shepherd. Mm. And I think what we we've discovered and, you know, in that companion article, I talked some about the missionary journey. We have found these sort of commonalities that happen in the lives of persevering microchurch leaders. 
And that actually part of the training and the discipleship of leaders includes letting them try and fail and try again. And that that's actually where they learn what they need to know for the thing that God has called them to. Of course, we want like high character, high values, high commitment, high call at the beginning. We want all that in place. But honestly, some of the things God is calling people to, we've never done it before. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually can't teach you how to do that thing, you know? Yeah. And, and maybe if God called you to that thing out of a place of like pain or redemption in your life, you already know way more about it than I do. Mm. And the way that people become resilient missionaries um, is letting them step out and try and fail and processing that quote failure with them, celebrating that they took, took that risk with Jesus and having those yeah. feedback loops and saying, what did we learn from that? And um, what's Jesus asking you to try next in this place of calling, you know? Yeah. And that's been really important because I think the mature, the maturing, resilient, persevering missionary comes at the end of this cycle of starting and trying and doing some things that seem silly and like they don't work and feeling a little embarrassed or worn out or tired. And how do I try again? And as you do that, we're finding that missionaries grow quite resilient and, and it takes like a little bit, you know, we talk about it as the crossroads. You and I have talked about this. There's a point in every missionary's journey where they start something, they get out there and try. They're so excited to know that God called them and wants to include them. And it's like fun and nerve wracking to start a thing. And then you start doing it and people just constantly say, I just feel like I'm failing right now. I just feel like I'm failing. And we're like, that's amazing. That means you're in phase two of micro church life. (laughs) All you're supposed to do right now is experiment and fail and learn from it. But, you know, there is a point where every micro church leader hits this crossroads where they kind of want to quit. And it's where you finally come to the end of yourself and what you thought you knew about this demographic or this place or this neighborhood or this people that God called you to and all the methods that you had learned, you know, your, the bridge diagrams and the, the trainings that you got that just didn't work. Yeah. Context. And if a leader can make it through that crossroads, which often what they need is a peer community of missionaries to say, oh, yeah, me too. I wanted to quit, too. Or, yeah, everything I tried failed, too. Yeah. And then I tried again, you know, where they need a peer community missionaries and they need to be reminded of that very vertical personal moment of calling from Jesus. And if they make it through that crossroads, often what happens is this deeper resilience and this deeper dependence on God and his spirit mm. and this sort of curiousness to learn and to figure out like, okay, all, the, all these tools I brought with me in my tool belt, like I'm either not using them right or they're not the right tools. And I've got to listen to my context and keep trying right. until I figure it out, you know? So I, I think that, you know, we've had people who started things and maybe the first iteration didn't work. You know, when we started created, we were like, cut me off whenever you need to. We were like, um, okay, how we, we were like, we don't know anything about, you know, women in Tampa or the sex industry in Tampa or prostitution in Tampa. How are we going to learn? So we were like, maybe we should go on some police ride alongs and ask them what they see and what they know and 
tell us about the culture here and um, and and maybe they should know who we are. Like if we're going to show up on the streets at 1 a.m. on Nebraska, which is the most notorious street in Tampa, like, is it important that the police know that we're not working? And like, what do we do? So we got these bright highlighter yellow T-shirts with the created logo on them for our outreach team. And we knew immediately when we put them on. We just, you know, you just felt embarrassed to be wearing them. And we're like on the street at 1 a.m. in the morning. We're like scaring women. They're like, who are these people? <laughs> and so slowly we would show up to outreach the next week and one more person would not have the shirt on until we just, they disappeared and we never talked about them again, you know, or um, offering like classical dance classes as we were like getting into strip club work and stuff like that. And no one's showing up to them. And you just try stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of it doesn't work, but then you start to find things that do, you know, a little um, time of prayer in the dressing room at the strip club or um, gift bags, or we just give a gift to women and just ask them how they're doing and offer to pray for them or whatever those little things are. And then you start to follow those trails. Okay. God, like, oh, this gave me much more time to talk to a woman and didn't scare and she seemed less afraid of me. So let's do this more, you know, I think that's part of the learning process, but every microchurch has to fail some to figure yeah. it out. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I want to hear a few more stories before we end. Uh, so I want to come back to that, but I, I, I want to ask a question about barriers that leaders might face. And I, I believe you're already answering some of that with what you're saying, but um, you know, we talked about permission. That's an important component of this. But do you see maybe like a common thread in that cycle as people are kind of trial and error and experimentation and learning? Mm-hmm. Like, man, we constantly have to help people get over this. I'm struggling to believe that. Mm-hmm. Something like that. I'm just curious if there's kind of patterns that you see that you have to equip people in. Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, we talked a little bit about the fact there's probably two personalities when it comes to calling those more apostolic personalities. They're not going to need a lot from you, Mm -hmm. Uh, but there's those more timid people who, man, it's like they want, they want to dare to believe that God would use them, but they're not sure they're the right person. Um, And I think those people, they need that permission giving that authoritative, like we're with you, like our whole team, the whole, this whole hub, all of everything we've got is at your disposal, you know? And I think coaching is probably the most practical resource we can offer people. It doesn't have to be super complicated. doesn't have to be like a big certified team. There's easy resources out there. Stuff like I've probably mentioned to you that simple book, the coaching habit. Um, It guides all that we do with coaching. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's about learning good, open-ended questions for people because we don't have to be experts in what they're doing. And we don't want to tell them what to do because what's appropriate for one microchurch to do would be different than a different one. But um, coaching is such a powerful tool to help people process those hard questions and come to new next steps and to try again. You know, so I think that's a really simple tool to help people overcome barriers. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. All right. I want to do a little bit of storytelling. Okay. 
So I'm going to give you a chance to think of one or two, specifically okay. the, the hula story that is in the companion article, but it will totally be worth sharing. I'm going to start with one to give you a chance to maybe think of one or two more uh, apart from that one. But you wrote in that article from middle schoolers among their classmates to families and single people in their neighborhoods, from victim survivors among addicts and women in the sex industry to professionals and places of business. Mm-hmm. When we asked the question, who can lead a microchurch? Your response was wherever Jesus is at work calling people into his mission, microchurch leaders can emerge. Mm-hmm. So I just want to take the last 10 minutes or so just to tell some stories. One of the ones that we've been telling a lot here recently, uh, I won't use names just for the sake of uh, mm-hmm. their stories, precious and it's a gift and uh, it's their story, not mine, but uh, one of the young guys in our network that was attending a lot of our equippings, uh, he's, uh, and, and trainings, he's has a brother that, um, lives at a, a day facility for adults with special needs. Mm-hmm. And he just has a love for his brother and for that community. And, um, I forget, I, I think he describes himself just as a slower processor, you know, and, uh, his brother is uh, kind of more low functioning, I would say. I'm trying to stay as general as I can. <laughs> so, anyway, basically, one day he just sort of raises his hand. He's like, hey, can I go lead a discovery Bible study at this day facility? Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking actually before we started today. One of our directors has a master's in working with adults with special needs. And she's like, I'm in. Let's go. <laughs> I'm going to drive you over. We're going to hang there. And after a few weeks of just doing these discovery Bible studies with these adults, it's like worship community and mission. We could see it overlapping. We're hanging as a team one day and we're like, it's time to celebrate, you know, but we were kind of late to the party because they'd already had a celebration. They celebrated together one day, like they're looking and going in acts. We see they did these things. And we're doing these things mm-hmm. with the church. <laughs> yeah. From what I understand, they had a little dance party that day. <laughs> and now the staff members are a part of that little microchurch there. And uh, they have all of the rhythms that we would say is true for any microchurch, wherever we see it in the city, those ecclesial minimums. Mm-hmm. And, man, I love telling that story for multiple reasons. One, for our friend that's leading that. Like he has so much life in him now of like, this was his thing. This is, he got to lead this, you know, and he's not necessarily been looked at throughout the course of his life as someone that could step in and be the leader because of whatever factors might've prohibited him in any other environment. But in that environment, he found his true calling. Um, and there, you know, like the, the celebration of life that is happening there, but also just trying to remember, and we talk about this, and again, I'm, I may have even shared that story before on a webinar with Lucas, but just that like we, we often think of uh, in, our, in our predominant model church planting or thoughts about that as like, how do we become a church for people that won't go to church? But the true story for some of the stories you've already shared that you might be about to share. And for this young guy, it's like, these are people that can't go. And it took a leader to say, these are my people Mm -hmm. and I'm going to them Mm -hmm. and I'm taking Jesus to them. Mm -hmm. 
So I just love that, you know, in all of this, like Jesus was calling him mm-hmm. to recognize this is my mission and I'm going to step into it. Mm-hmm. But you got to tell the hula story now. <laughs> oh, I tell that one. Um, I could tell that one or I could tell another one. Um, we got, we have about nine minutes left. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The, well, don't read the hula story in the article. Um, I was going to tell you about this other friend of mine. I was, I was texting with her some today and uh, she said I could tell some of her story, but you know, in the work with created, we've ha- we've seen a number of um, survivor leaders emerge from that ministry. And this one particular woman um, she said it was okay if I, I said her name and, and shared her story, but we met her years, years ago in the early years of Created. Um, and she quickly became a part of our team. April had lived on and off the streets for years. She had probably been in and out of jail and prison, you know, 30 times by the time she was 30. And um, she's tough. They called her big baby and uh, on the streets because she has a really tender heart, actually. Um, but she's a really tough woman. Girl, men in the neighborhood were afraid of, of her. And um, she had this encounter with the Lord and came into created. And, and from the very first week that she came in, um, you know, she was in this Friday night Oasis Bible study. She had been coming in, not the first week, but she'd been there a couple months and things would happen like she would be there in the Bible study and a new woman would come in and they knew her from being in the life. And I remember this, this other woman that we love dearly who came in and saw her and she just sat quiet the whole night watching April in the Bible study. And we were studying the woman at the well and, and this new woman hadn't said anything the entire night. She just listened to us talk about the woman at the well and this amazing encounter she had with Jesus and how she just went back to this village and, you know, told them who he was, this village that knew everything she'd ever done. And the the night ended and this, this newer woman spoke up and she said, you know, I've been sitting really quietly all night long. She's like, you guys don't know, but I know her. Like we know each other from the streets or whatever. (laughs) And she's like, I'm listening to you tell this story about Jesus and and this woman. And I think she's the woman in the story because she's been coming back and talking to us and we didn't believe her. When I walked in the house tonight, I didn't believe her when she told us what Jesus had done in our life. You know, this was years ago. So you fast forward years later, at one point, April got the chance to go back into the jails to start visiting women as a part of the created team. And I remember her telling the story about the first time she walked in and she knew all the guards. She'd been there so many times. Everyone knew her. They were just shocked to see her on that side (laughs) with her badge. She's like, I promise I have a badge. They're like, what are you doing here? And she began to go in and visit with women. And in the past few years, she has really taken over the the coordinating and the running of the out, some of the outreach departments, particularly of street outreach. And, um, you know, that's the way some micro churches, they grow by replicating or by multiplying. Some grow by scaling and adding new um, new outreaches, new aspects to their microchurch under the same umbrella. And that's part of how Created grew. And April coordinates that now. And April knows more than any of us know about how to speak to women about Jesus, right. how to, you know, get past all those barriers and those walls and stuff. I go on outreach and women think I'm like undercover police immediately. It's just this weird thing about me. And um, she takes me along and she's like, oh, I know exactly where to go. Like, this is where we're going to go. And every time we go together, man, we just talk to so many women and they immediately recognize her 
like, even if they don't know her, some of them do, they recognize something in her that immediately there's an openness to talk about Jesus, you know, but she's not someone that is necessarily going to show up in our doors. Or if we saw her there, we're going to go, that's exactly what a leader looks like in our old paradigms. You know what I mean? Right. Right. But she's exactly the kind of person that Jesus is inviting into the work. Yeah. That, that makes me think of, uh, our buddy James, who's a leader in Share the Hope, it's a network for men and their families who have been affected by incarceration. And he is one of the like most catalytic sort of leaders. Like he's just constantly starting new things with guys that are getting out of jail. I'm, I'm not sure. I have no idea how old James is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just heard this recently from him. Like it's never, never had a W-2 in his life. Mm-hmm been in and out of jail, all that, but he's one of the primary leaders within share the hope. Mm-hmm. And it, those were literally his words to us. It's like, I, like no one's ever looked at me like this and entrusted me to lead other people and just to be trusted with that. And then again, I recently heard another story where he's in a meeting and there's another guy that's joining this little leadership team for this microchurch that's multiplied up to eight times now. And this guy's kind of, you know, he's sitting on the leadership team now and James looks at him and, you know, he goes like, well, what, what makes you think you can lead with us essentially is the question that he's asking. And this guy sitting beside him is like, well, I was in prison for three years and James like, Oh, you're good. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> A different qualification. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like that's like the qualification for him. It's like, you have a story that will resonate with the people that are a part of this extended spiritual family. It, it's that. And it's, and it is, it is that. And it is also that when God calls a person to a thing, when they serve faithfully there, and sometimes when they have that story in their background, that's, you know, they don't always have to, but when God calls a person to a place and they're faithful in that place over time, he grows gravitas in them. Mm. And we each can grow gravitas in the sphere that God has called us to. But like when I'm in April's sphere, I defer to her a hundred percent. Like she's the one God's giving gravitas to in that place. And I may know some things I may have been doing outreach for a long time, but it's clear when I'm in her orbit, like she's the one God has placed here, you know? And I think there's something important about that as we, as people discern calling to know, like, man, we can really defer to each other when I step into your sphere and when you step into mine, you know? Yeah. Well, I just want to say it again. I want to read your quote because I think it answers the question, kind of gives the umbrella for today, but from middle schoolers among their classmates to families and single people in their neighborhoods, from victim survivors among addicts, women in the sex industry to professionals in places of business, wherever Jesus is at work, wherever he's at work, calling people into his mission, microchurch leaders can emerge. That's the answer. (laughs) It's not about us. It's about what he is doing in us and inviting 
us to join him in that. So Stacy, thank you so much for today. It's always again, a joy to talk to you, uh, for everybody that's joining us in this, you're going to hear more from Tampa underground as pioneers in this, these friends that we stand on their shoulders. So again, Stacy, thank you so much for joining us. For those watching, you can go, uh, check out Stacy's article. We've mentioned several times at exponential.org. Uh, just look up who can lead and hopefully it'll come up there. So grace and peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Leadership Network podcast and joining the conversation for what is next for the church and its leaders. We look forward to connecting with you as we bring our questions, contribute our wisdom, and pursue what is next. Visit leadnet.org for more resources, information about leader cohorts, and more. That is leadnet.org.